Let's continue our praise of God's sovereign grace by turning in our Bibles to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 3 to 6 this morning. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. And as you're there, I want to thank publicly uh, David for handling the word in my absence last week. Uh, David, I was watching in between services. So I, I preached at a church in Wisconsin last week. They had an evening service, two morning services. They had an hour break. So I was able to sit in and in between have my own soul fed as I was trying to feed others. And it did indeed bless my soul. Thank you for your study of the word. And uh, I got to say, as always, when I come back, it's just I love this place. I love being able to be with you. And I'm especially excited that we are at the halfway point of our series, Foundations of Faith. Uh, we are at the, the middle way. And I've seen good fruit from these conversations uh, together as a church family. And I pray it will continue as we particularly look at what I think is probably the most comforting and concerning doctrine in the entire series. I don't just mean the most comforting by itself. There are plenty of doctrines of Scripture that, that may be more comforting than this one. I don't simply mean concerning. There are some doctrines of Scripture that do cause us concern. They cause us to think a little more than maybe this one. But to put the two together, to address a topic that is both at the same time comforting or potentially concerning, I know of none other than what is here in verses 3 through 6. Please read it with me. I'll read aloud. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What we see here in this text is God's purpose of grace. The theological label often given to this is none other than election. Election. It is not some top-shelf doctrine for the theologically elite. This is a foundation of our faith. It is a fact of Scripture that cannot be ignored. It is one that must eventually be embraced if one would be faithful. And do you see why I say it is one of the most comforting or concerning doctrines of Scripture. When you hear that God chose some people but didn't choose other people, does that comfort you or concern you? If you're concerned, I understand. 
I very much do. We should be concerned with some conceptions of this because it could negatively portray the character of God and it could immobilize the conduct of man. Right? Do you see how it would put God in a bad light? I mean, election could make God out to be cruel and oppressive. It could reduce his relationship to mankind as that of a marionette. We don't see those that much these days, but you know what they are. It's the puppet with the strings. There's God sovereignly in heaven pulling the strings of mankind, consigning some into his eternal love and condemning some into eternal hell forever. Kind of concerning, no? Think about the way that it could immobilize the conduct of men. If this doctrine be true, would we say then that, you know what, there's no need to evangelize? Why do missions? If God has already chosen some people to be saved, I mean, what in the world are we going to like, concern ourselves for? What difference would it make anyway? If he's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, we're like, what role do we play? Even in my own life, friends, moment of transparency here, I used to argue personally against this doctrine vehemently. I know you guys know me to be one who went to seminary and did formal training somewhere in Los Angeles, but before I ever did that, I went to a Bible college in eastern North Carolina in which my final exam in theology was to argue against the very doctrine that we're discussing this morning. I would not pass the exam unless I could undermine, biblically speaking, the truth that I'm about to posit this morning. So I don't want you to think I'm playing devil's advocate. I really do understand what it is to be concerned about these four verses. But for those of you who are concerned, I would, I would want you to know that there's another group of people in here who are actually very comforted by this. Comforted? How are they comforted? Well, positively speaking, they see that such a doctrine actually enhances the character of God. It, it, makes, it puts them in a po- even in a more positive light. And the, the, the others in the room, myself included, to be fair, They think that this doctrine actually encourages evangelism and it doesn't inhibit it. I mean, when it comes to the character of God, uh, election can portray him as gracious and generous and kind insofar as uh, his relationship with mankind is something personal, it is something unique, it is something that he graciously chose to do. When we understand that we're all rebels against God and that we all deserve his righteous wrath, the fact that he would pick anybody out of that is an act of grace. That comforts me. And when I think about evangelism, 
When I think about mission, when I think about the glory of God being made known across the world, why in the world would I ever leave the comfort of this zip code if I did not have the assurance that the people that I am proclaiming the gospel to would actually get saved? When I understand that people are spiritually dead in sin, dead things don't respond, I have no hope of being able to preach effectively, proclaim effectively, witness effectively, unless God has sovereignly decided to overcome their deadness and give spiritual life. Even in my own life, I am these days embracing this wholeheartedly. It is not for me an intellectual thing. It's not that I know how to answer the exam question differently. This is something that is true within my own heart. And I I want you to understand that it has opened up to me vistas of worship that were otherwise unknown. Friends, this is true whether you want to believe it or not. And I'm telling you that the text today may open up a view of God that is glorious that you have never seen before. But I want to be fair about how I'm going to handle this because I understand that it could be controversial for some. Uh, First, I'll make this um, agreement with you as the congregation. I'm not going to debate this topic with you. I'm not going to go with pros and cons and lay out a chart and then play devil's advocate and present both sides and somehow like try to uh, persuade you. I'm not going to beat up on the person in here today that says I'm in the concerned category. Don't worry, you don't have to leave. I don't even want to give ammunition, by the way, to other people in the congregation to do the same. If you were here this morning and you were legitimately concerned or unsettled about some of the stuff that seems to have been communicated in verses 4 through 6, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to help you out. At the same time, I'm also not going to defend or apologize for what the text says. What we need to do today to really fuel our worship is let the text speak. So, what is the text trying to tell us? Well, it it tells us that God chose us, and this should prompt us to praise. If you want to know what these verses are about, it's really simple. An eight-year-old could understand it. God chose us, and that should prompt us to praise. It shouldn't cause us concern. It should uh, lead us to praise. Now, let me give you some, some context and some terms that will help you just come to agreement with what the inspired text of Scripture says. Contextually, we're, we're only down to verse 3, so you don't need too much here, <laughs> uh, too much background information. But if you look at verse One, you see that Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, that's important for you to know. Who's he talking to? It's a big deal. You're going to really mess this thing up if you don't get this. He's talking to people who are already in Christ. When we say saints, some people could think, because of uh, the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, that this means elite Christians. But I just want to, like, fill you in with some terminology real quick. A saint just means one's made holy by God. You're a saint. I'm a saint. If you are, notice the next part in verse 1. 
uh, faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, faithful is indeed the word that kind of messes us up because when you hear the word faithful in English, you think of a guy that's dependable and trustworthy, somebody you can rely on. But the Greek word, while it sometimes means that, more often than not, actually means one who places faith in someone or something. So in this case, uh, it is talking to those who are full of faith in Christ Jesus, those who are believing in him. All right, so contextually, just be clear, this is a, this is a family conversation. If you're here this morning and you're out of Christ, I am so happy for you to listen in, but I want you to know that I am not going to be talking to you as like, haha, you're on the outside of things, good luck. I'm actually talking to people who are on the inside of things, those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in him. That is Paul's primary target. So contextually, you need to be aware of that. And then there are a couple of content things I want to make you aware of. Uh, Starting in verse 3, Paul is just like, he is pumped about God. The triune God, to be exact. He's going to mention the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But notice how he opens it up. Here's the, the opening line of his doxology in this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when you see the word blessed, uh, it is not meaning that uh, God is blessed insofar as he has a lot of stuff. Now, the word blessed is going to occur three times in this verse and one more down in verse 6. Um, I... <laughs> It literally means good-worded, good-worded. It means a good word, like if you just were to like, give it its most basic definition. Uh, but it, it means more than that, literally good-worded. But good-worded about what? Well, it's interesting. What we're saying is God deserves our good words. Blessed be God. Uh, another way to say it is he's worthy of our praise. Uh, one pastor said of this text, it wasn't made to be read, it was made to be sung. It, it's, it's jubilation, it's rejoicing in who God is. So he's saying, blessed is God. The, God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our good words. You know what I'm saying? Why is he worthy of our good words? Well, it says, blessed be God, and it particularly calls out the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is also the Father of us, as will become clear. But notice why he is called out in specific. Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So now the same word, good-worded, is going to be applied to us. Blessed be God, he's worthy of our good words, who has blessed us. Now here's what's interesting. God has good-worded us. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean praise when it comes from the creator to the creature. When God speaks good words to his people, guess what happens? Good things. Whatever God says comes to being, it comes true. It stands in stark contrast to what we will do to God. Is that blessed be God. We, we intend good things for God. We intend to speak him good. Uh, And it does indeed give him praise. But when God speaks good to us, it gives us indeed good things that we otherwise did not have. In particular, he calls it out here as every spiritual blessing. Every kind of spiritual, good-worded thing that God could give, he has given it. 
And he says they're spiritual blessings. Now, let's be clear about this. This isn't some like platonic concept like spiritual as opposed to material. All it means is source. These are blessings that have come from the Holy Spirit himself. And it says that they've come into heavenly places or from the heavenly places. What, what does he mean by that? Well, it doesn't just mean that they're like up there in a heavenly banking account drawing interest. What it actually means is the heavenly realms or God's realm of authority. Every powerful blessing that we need or could possibly imagine is now currently ours on account of the Spirit. And so God be praised. And here's where things take a turn toward our topic. Are you ready? It starts at verse 4 as he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's talking about every spiritual blessing you could possibly imagine in verse 3, and then he's going to get particular with the unique blessing that comes from God the Father, and then he's going to cover the unique blessing that comes from God the Son, and then he's going to cover the unique blessing that comes from God the Holy Spirit. Today we're only focusing on the Father. So what is the unique way that the Father has blessed us and on account of this he deserves our good words and our praise? It is so simple. There is only one main verb to this monstrosity of a sentence. In Greek it starts at verse 3. It ends at verse 14. And one main verb occurs in verse 4 even as he chose us. It's the only main verb in the entire sentence from verses 3 to 14. Uh, Friends, verbs carry the primary action. (laughs) Uh, This is basically where it's at when it comes to praising God. Paul is pumped, sorry to use the modern word, about God's particular choosing of us. This doesn't concern him. This excites him. And he thinks that it will excite the Ephesians as well. Particularly, we're going to see that the Father chose us for his presence, his paternity, and his praise. The Father chose us for his presence, his paternity, and his praise. First, the Father chose us to enter into his presence. Verse 4. Would you just, don't just hear the word chose. Because, like, you kind of have to ask the question, you know, like, oh, what did God do here? He chose us. Well, well, chose us for what? (laughs) I mean, that's a fantastic question. Like, you kind of need to know, like, what he's choosing you for. Uh, I, you know, I think of, like, selective draft and military service. Okay, I do it if I need to, but I'm not thinking, yes, chosen. (laughs) Or, Maybe you've had this happen. Thankfully, I've got out of it twice. Don't judge me. But jury duty. I I don't think when I see that letter come in the mail, yes, potentially 30 days of my life gone. (laughs) But what are we chosen for here? This is beautiful. It says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. The term before him just means in his presence, literally in his presence. God chose some of us to be forever in his presence. That's why I say he chose us to enter into his presence. But again, 
Let's let the text speak. I want to ask some questions of it, and you, you're going to find the answers. You're going to see it. I'll help you see it. But just, be, what is he talking about here? Like, before we object, before we uh, hedge our bets on this thing, before we try to define it to mean something else that uh, is more palatable to us, let's let Paul do the talking. So let's just ask some basic questions to Paul. Uh, first question, uh, what did God do? He chose. Um, I read a, a lot of really boring material uh, in the Greek language this week to, d- to try to see if choose in Greek means something different than it does in English. And that, look, I'm going I'm to save you four hours of your life that I'll never get back. It means the same thing. What is pretty cool, though, for any even first-year Greek student is the voice that is used in the utilization of this verb. Now, when you hear the word voice, you don't normally think of it very much in English unless you're, like, diagramming sentences in the eighth grade. But English verbs have voice, and there's only two. There's active and there's passive. Right? Uh, any parent knows the difference between active and passive. Uh, active is, I hit him. Passive, this is normally the way that it goes down in the house, he hit me. <laughs> or, I was hit by him would probably be the way to put it in the passive. I, I was hit or I hit. Uh, we only have those two options. Either the subject is doing the acting upon something or it is being acted upon, passive. That's something that's weird. Greek has a third voice. It's called the middle. The middle voice is when a verb acts in interest of itself or for itself. So basically we would say it this way. Um, I won't use the hitting example. Let me use eating. I ate a cheeseburger. And here's what would be implied by that. In parentheses, for myself. I didn't eat a cheeseburger for you. I ate a cheeseburger for me. <laughs> it's, uh, the middle voice communicates self-interest. You don't even have to write in for myself. You just use the middle, and it's going to say, oh, it's talking about me. Or if we could say this for you introverts in the room, um, I drank coffee, in parentheses, by myself. What I mean with that is it was with reference to no one else other than myself. I don't even have to write anything else in the sentence. By using the middle voice, it was either with reference to myself or in interest of myself. Well, guess what we have here, friends? He chose, which doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. But then the middle makes it even more clear. He chose for himself. He chose with reference to himself to qualify some people for his presence. Uh, there, there's no debating this. It's kind of like, I always find this funny, when you're sitting on an airline, uh, I mean an airplane, and th- they're giving this announcement, and all of them make the same thing. They say, we know that you have a choice when choosing an airline, so thank you for choosing us. <laughs> I always wonder like, why they say, we know that you have a choice. Of course I had a choice. <laughs> well, sometimes I didn't have that great of a choice, but I had a choice nonetheless. Uh, Friends, all I want you to see is that a choice really is a choice. Okay, I'll give you some of the the legwork from the hours spent reading the boring stuff. If you want to know how the word choose is used in classical literature, 
Greek literature in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and in Koine Greek, which is the popular language at the time. Here's three features that pretty much carry the day of this particular verb. One is that it is often applied to God. That's just an interesting fact, but this is even better. Two, the choosing takes place in the context of having known all the other options. The choosing takes place in the context of having known all the other options. Um, yeah, I'm, I won't get into that. Three, there is no indication of dislike toward those not chosen. When you see this word, it doesn't imply that just because somebody was chosen that anybody else is hated. And then four, the chooser makes his choice freely apart from the deserts or demands of the one chosen. In other words, you can't force the person to make a choice, otherwise it's not a choice. So, so there's never a case in which like, the gun was held up to somebody's head and said, choose this, and that was actually qualifying as a choice. Nobody held the gun to God's head and said, you've got to do it. He freely chose to do it. So what did he do? He chose. Whom did he choose? Us. Us in him is what the text says. But we already defined that. Who is he talking about? He's talking about anyone, if, let's qualify this for this room, anyone in this room who is faithful in Christ Jesus, who is full of faith in Jesus, who is depending upon Jesus. Anyone in this room who is, uh, to use the, the term here, in him, it says. What does it mean to be in him? It just means to exist in reference to Christ as opposed to existing in reference to Adam. We covered this a few weeks ago in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. If Christ is the one under which you've organized your life, you draw your sustenance from him, and you say, I'm with him. Okay, he chose you. If you're saying, nope, I'm just my own man. I am in Adam. I'm just doing my own thing. I don't have anything to do with Christ. I operate in the realm of me, myself, and mine. He's not talking about you. You're not chosen. So who did he choose? He chose those who have, by faith, united or been united to Christ. Uh, another question, when did he choose? That's a good question. Paul answers this. It says, before the foundation of the world. Now, I, I don't want to over, you know, overstate the metaphor here, but I, mean, I think we get what the foundation of the world is, right? The word foundation is often used in the Greek language to literally refer to throwing down. Uh, like throwing down the first stones upon which a building will be built. Uh, throwing down seed which will bring about a harvest. It even is used sometimes sexually to refer to throwing down human seed that will eventually produce life. Uh, this is before the throwing down of the world. So, uh, get in your mental time machine for a second, and I want you to go all the way back to, like, creation. And you still haven't gone back far enough. <laughs> he made the decision even before that. In fact, before the foundation of creation, like, all the way before that. Uh, the, I think the philosophical term we're looking for here is eternity past. It kind of covers this. Sometime in, th in the depths of eternity past, God made this decision to, to include some in his presence. This doesn't mean that he made the decision at the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus because that would mean that you made the decision. 
It says that he made the decision. And he did it before the foundation of the, the world. And, and why did he do this? The text answers that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So what is it that we were actually chosen for? To enter his presence, to be before him. Even the words holy and blameless make this clear. Anybody familiar with their Greek version of the Old Testament would have known that for anyone to enter into and enjoy the presence of God, they had to be holy and blameless. They were always talking about sacrifices, right? Being holy and blameless. And what it says here is that God is going to choose to make some people totally morally and spiritually acceptable before him. It says holy and blameless. That means pure of heart. And notice this. It says in love. Now, admittedly, your English translation is um, conflicted here. <laughs> if you have the ESV, you probably like, thought, man, he misread that thing. I, I don't think I did. Uh, look at uh, verse four at the end in your Bible. Uh, notice, it, at least in mine, it says, uh, chose us to be holy and blameless before him, period. And then it has capital I, in him. And then the verse doesn't start till verse five. You're thinking, all right, the publisher messed this one up. I want a refund. No, the publisher was trying to capture the nuance of the word. Remember I told you this is one long sentence? And you see the words in love here, and those people don't know, like, does it go with holy and blameless? So, holy and blameless before him in love? Or does it go with in love he pretestined us? It's not clear. But I would lean toward the in love being associated with holy and blameless. Because to be holy and blameless before God uh, it consists of nothing else than what? Loving God and loving others. Some of you think of holy and blameless as not listening to certain kinds of music or movies or saying certain words or whatever. Uh, but actually, it, it is re in reference to your love, your absolute love and allegiance to God, in reference to your absolute love and allegiance for other people. And God does that. He chose to do that. To make you something that you otherwise would not have been. Just as some are chosen to be president. Some are chosen to be line leader. Some are chosen to be team captain or even homecoming queen. God chose us to be holy and blameless before him in love. God be praised. You don't clean yourself up. You don't qualify yourself for his presence. He chose to do that to you. He chose to do that for you. He chose to put some into absolute perfect relationship with himself. And his choice uh, thereby communicates. Because, I mean, you thought that your kids were hard-headed. God, when he says, I will do something, he basically is communicating, I will make them holy and blameless before me in love, even if it kills me. And it did kill a son. God did everything, everything needed to make you right with him, to enjoy his presence forever. Can I help you with something practically? Will you do a thought experiment with me? 
I want you to imagine for a moment, very concretely, the biggest sin with which you regularly struggle. It could be a holy, blameless kind of thing. It could be a love thing where you have a, just a hard time loving a certain person in your life. Think of it. I, I want you to think of it. And you know that that sin is something that like, practically, functionally so, like, separates you from enjoying God's immediate presence. You wouldn't just like, trounce into heaven if you could with sin still in heart. And I want you to think of something else. God already determined in eternity past to so purge you of that sin, that unholiness, that lovelessness, that it is as good as done. You will indeed enjoy his presence forever. He's already decided to fix it. Do you see the hope of this? See, if you actually like come into this thing thinking, man, I've got to hold this thing together until I get in those pearly gates, I don't know if you'll make it. Because like, I, you're, just gonna, you're gonna fall into a pit of despair and you'll never be able to climb out of that. But when you know that in the end, he's gonna fix it, he already decided. It's done. You're in. He's, he's determined it. That gives you hope to keep fighting. If you're not yet in Christ, can I ask you a question? Do, do you sense a desire to enjoy his presence? Are you tired of your sin and your filth and your rebellion? Are you tired of your selfishness, your shallow love, your pride? Here's what I would say to you, friends, who are listening in. Just come to him believing. He will fit you for a life, for an eternity with himself. His righteousness has already been provided. The holiness is as good as done as the Spirit comes to reside in all those who trust in the completed work of his Son. This is what God has chosen to do. So God is worthy of our good word, our blessing, because he chose us to enter into his presence. Notice what else the Father chose in verse 5. It says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So what he chooses for here? Very simply, to enjoy his paternity to enjoy his paternity the fact that he is a father and wants to have a relationship with people who he will make his children it says that he predestined us for adoption as sons through jesus christ so what did god do well the verb says he predestined now, <laughs> when you think of this word i mean if you were philosophically disturbed by the word chosen this is not going to give you any more warm vibes, I assure you. Uh, most people culturally, when they, they think of the word uh, predestined, they hear the word destiny. And I, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I would imagine that when most of us hear the term, it is your destiny, we don't want to admit it in church, but the first thing we think of is the Empire Strikes Back. 
where Darth Vader says to Luke, it is your destiny to overthrow the emperor. That's a pretty cool thing to be destined for, right? In that a fictitious imaginary world. That, that is actually the sense of, of what's going on here, destiny. But there's one huge difference between George Lucas' fatalistic concept of destiny and the biblical one. Huge difference. It's very similar, but one thing outstanding we need to point out. And that is that in this case, it isn't it predestined, but he predestined. It's not a force, but a father. A father determined, predetermined, pre-before, ahead of time. He determined ahead of time to do what? To adopt. Why did God predestine for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ? I mean, once again, it, this could be a really good thing to be predestined, or it could be a really bad thing. It's one thing to be predestined to overthrow the emperor. It's something else to think of that, that Greek fable of lore of Oedipus. You may remember this from high school. Uh, this was the one who was, according to the oracle of Delphi, predestined to kill his father and marry his mother. And despite everything that he does to escape this, he still ends up fulfilling that fate. See, when we normally think of the destiny of God, we only think of the negative thing. And yet, what Paul is leading us to think about is the destiny. His determination beforehand to make us sons. To adopt us. Now, what does he mean by adoption? Some translations will actually make this a sonship. Uh, friends, th the word adoption is perfect. I'm so delighted that as a pastor, I know of so many of you who are interested in reflecting God's special love through adoption. Some of you have fostered, which is beautiful in and of itself. It is to show care on a temporary basis. And yet, adoption is a step beyond that. Because it isn't a temporary provision of supply but it's to enter into lifelong relationship. In fact, I think that what most of the original readers of, of Paul's letter here would have thought of was uh, Roman adoptio. The, the Roman adoption process is fascinating, especially when you understand like, how powerful and complete the control of the father was in a Roman household. I mean, every culture at every time, well, well, maybe except for American culture, unfortunately. But most cultures and most times uh, normally consign some, consign some type of de facto authority to a father. He is typically called what? The head of household. He just generally makes decisions on behalf of the family. Uh, but Rome did that on steroids. Uh, the, the father in a Roman household actually had uh, this uh, unique authority that is even still discussed and talked about today patria potestis. It means that he had absolute authority in the home to the degree that when a child was born, he could legally decide whether or not the child would live or die. Remember in the, uh, the movie 
uh, gladiator. The, the emperor has the ability to either thumbs up or thumbs down. Essentially, the same authority was granted to the father. When the baby was born, he could thumbs up or thumbs down, and there would be no penalty. We're talking absolute power. And therefore, for a child to leave his custody, because he was indeed his property, was a difficult thing. So the way that the Roman adoption ceremony would unfold is that the father wanting to give up the rights of his son would sell the son into slavery. He would sell the son to the one that wanted to do the adopting. And the guy who wants to adopt the child would pay good money for that. And then guess what he was required to do by law? To send him back to his father. The father would then retain the child in his custody again, and the guy would come back with the same price and offer to buy the child again. He would buy the child, the child would be liberated, brought into the home, and then by law, he had to be released once more, just in case that father decided to change his mind at any point. And now, having been twice paid for, the guy would come up one more time and pay that father so as to redeem that child into his custody and only on the third time that he was paid for would he be the rightful possession of the new father friends this may not mean much to you unless you've read ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 that talk about how dominated we were it says that we were children of the prince of the power of the air we were totally under the domain of sin but God intervened. He brought us out of that at great cost to himself. He included us in his family. And now we enjoy full legal privilege status. We can actually say, and some theologians do this, that Jesus is our elder brother. What did he predetermine to do? He predetermined to make you his child. And for those of you who would be concerned about the term uh, predetermined us as sons, you think, well, that's rather sexist. It's because sons in the first century world had full legal privileges and status. It is sons and daughters of God with full legal status before him. And here is what this means. We were not merely fostered by God. We were adopted by him. Prince God had not determined beforehand, if he had not determined beforehand to adopt us, we would be of all people most miserable. And yet he included us through Jesus Christ into his family. And so we ask ourselves one more question. How did he do this? How did God predestine? The text says, according to the purpose of his will. How did he do it? He did it according to the purpose of his will. Now, as translated in the ESV, it sounds like God predestined us solely because he decided to predestine us, which is, I guess, true. <laughs> uh, but what is missing, interestingly, as much as I love our, our, our translation of Scripture here, is that it doesn't really explain the motivation uh, behind God's choosing, like what was prompting God to do this. I'm going to read to you the same phrase from multiple translations of Scripture, all of which are mainstream. This isn't me, like, digging through some weird translation. This is, like, mainstream stuff. And I want you to see and listen out for the common theme that's missing in the ESV. You ready? Uh, Christian Standard Bible. According to the good pleasure of his will. Uh, NASB. According to the kind intention of his will. King, King.